You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Um, You know, when I was a senior in high school, my English teacher, that was a guy named Evan Williams, he asked every student to select a book and, of course, read it and then do the obligatory report on it. And I honestly don't recall what book I chose, but I do recall walking up to the front of the room and there's Mr. Williams standing at the podium and he looked at my book and it was clear he did not like my choice. He really didn't say anything, but then he reached over to his desk and picked up a book and he handed me Catch-22 by Joseph Heller and he suggested I read that instead. Now, I had never heard of this book before, and I remember very little about it. That was many years ago. Although I do seem to recall that the main character was an Air Force pilot named Yossarian, and that the setting for the book was World War II. But what I do remember about the book was that I was laughing out loud. Some of the scenes were just ludicrous, and I was just laughing out loud while I was reading this. And that's something that I rarely ever do while I'm reading. Now, since that book came out, the phrase Catch-22 has become part of the lexicon, and it's one I've used myself ever since I read that book. Honestly, I don't think I knew the term before that. Of course, I was only like 17 years old. Now, the idea is very simple. It's a paradoxical situation in which one is trapped due to contradictory rules or conditions. Now, as I said, I don't remember much about the book, so I did a little bit of checking, and one of the examples did refresh my memory. Now, I know the term crazy is not necessarily politically correct, but I'm going to use it because that's how the example was explained. And actually, as I tell the story for today, you're going to see that term comes up uh, again. Anyway, let's suppose someone is crazy. Well, clearly they shouldn't be piloting a plane, particularly during a war. On the other hand, there's a war going on, so you'd need to be crazy to get in the cockpit and fly a bomber. And let's suppose you think you're crazy and you need to get off these missions. You know, you want to get removed from flying these missions. Well, then you need to fill out all the paperwork and go through the process of submitting it. But if you can fill out all that paperwork and submit it, clearly you're not crazy and you need to keep flying. It's a catch-22 situation. Okay, so let's just give a couple of real-life examples. Uh, And I've heard this one before, that people who want to enter the job market, particularly after college, they can't get a job because they lack experience. But of course, without that experience, there's no way for them to get the job that's needed to gain the experience. Or a person who is homeless seeks a job so they can get a place to live, but they can't apply for the job because they have no address to place on the application. It's a catch-22 situation. Well, today I have a great long-forgotten story from the early 1900s that could be interpreted as a catch-22 situation. It's a story of a New Jersey man who was sentenced to die and then forgotten about by the system. 
he would simply disappear into the walls of the state's prison system. You see, a glitch in the law caused him to remain on death row indefinitely. If he asked the courts to reopen his case, there was a slight possibility he could walk free. Yet in the process of having his case reopened, he could be thought sane, and that would almost certainly result in his execution. So the only way for him to definitely stay alive was to remain on death row. It was a catch-22 situation. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman, and today I present to you the true story of New Jersey's forgotten man. Useless information. The man who would find himself in this catch-22 situation was Archibald Heron. He was born on April 26, 1869 in Ireland and emigrated to the United States as a young boy. A blacksmith by trade, Archie and his wife Margaret would settle in Metuchen, New Jersey and raise their son, Archie Jr. there. A brief front-page article in the September 21, 1906 publication of the Daily Home News read, Metuchen Man Gets 30 Days. Archie Heron of Metuchen arrived in jail this morning for a term of 30 days, charged with disorderly conduct. Recorder Prickett committed him. The recorder Prickett in that article was Reverend Samuel Brown D. Prickett, who had come to Metuchen about 12 years earlier to preach in their Methodist church. But after a two-year stint, he opted to retire and became the editor of the Metuchen Recorder. Prickett was highly regarded and served as Metuchen's recorder or magistrate for a brief period of time. Now, it's just coincidence he was the editor of the recorder and he served as the town's recorder. Anyway, Archie had been brought before recorder Prickett before, mostly for intoxication and disorderly conduct, but also for failure to support his wife and child. Now, Reverend Prickett had saved Archie from jail several times, but for some unknown reason on that September day, he was left with no choice but to throw Archie in the slammer. But Archie insisted he wasn't drunk. Instead, he claimed he'd been overcome by the heat, even though records show that the high temperature on that day, the day of his arrest, was only 80 degrees Fahrenheit, or 26.7 degrees Celsius. But Prickett was a nice guy and released Archie after just serving 10 days in jail. Archie would brood over Prickett's decision to lock him up for the next two years. He seemed to grow angrier and angrier with each passing day, and he continually threatened revenge. Now, Reverend Prickett laughed at Archie's escalating threats, but the clergyman's friends and family, they became concerned. And they appealed to Marshal Enos Ferrat for help, and he agreed to keep an eye on Archie. Then, on Wednesday, July 15th of 1908, Archie went to visit George Markey, who's an acquaintance who was being held in jail on a larceny charge. And Archie would return later in the day to talk to Markey. And it's unknown what the two had discussed, but reporters later speculated that visiting Markey in jail fueled Archie's anger towards Prickett to the boiling point. That same afternoon around 3.30 p.m., Reverend Prickett and his son Charles had been trying to fix a pump in the clergyman's Clive Avenue home. Unable to do so, the elder Prickett decided he'd take a walk downtown and talk to a repairman. Unfortunately, he never got that far. Just as he was walking away from his son's house, which happened to be next door to his own home, Archie suddenly appeared and got in Prickett's face. 
What are you about, man? What are you trying to do? And before Reverend Prickett could say anything, Archie Heron fired a shot that passed through Prickett's heart and lung. At that moment, son Charles turned and saw Archie standing there with a smoldering gun still in his hand. Archie then stated, That will finish you. You will die. As Prickett fell into his son Charles' arms, he said, Catch me. I'm shot. So Charles moved his father to the steps on the side of the house and he took a few footsteps in pursuit of Archie. 67-year-old Reverend Prickett's last words to his son were, Let him go. Charles's wife, who had been in their house at the time, she heard the shooting and emergency Archie making his escape. She questioned what he had done, and he replied, You'll find out soon enough. And when she asked him what his name was, he replied, Archibald Heron. And then he was gone. But Archie wasn't that hard to find. Believe it or not, he went straight home. He walked into the house, and he asked his wife if she had anything for him to eat. He then sat down as she placed food on the table, and then Mrs. Heron then went outside into the yard. But moments later, a posse, it was led by Constable Adolph Cornish, the posse arrived and they demanded that Archie open the door. He refused and retreated to his second floor bedroom. Marshal Ferrat then arrived and he proceeded to bash the exterior door open. Cornish took his first couple of steps up the stairs only to be pulled back by the other men. A heated war of words then broke out between Archie upstairs and the men downstairs. They warned Archie that he needed to surrender or they would take him dead or alive. Boom! The sound of Archie's gun firing echoed throughout the house. Every man on the ground floor looked at each other to see who had been shot. Luckily, they were all unharmed. So could Archie have pointed the gun at himself? Mrs. Heron quickly ruled that out, quote, No, I don't believe my husband has committed suicide. I know him. A little later, Archie appeared at the upstairs door, holding his hands up so everyone could see that he didn't have a gun. Marshal Ferrat then took him into custody as another officer raced up the stairs to locate the weapon. The loaded gun was found in a cigar box. As Archie was being ready to leave the house, he asked for his coat and handkerchief, and it was then noticed that one of his fingers was bleeding profusely. Archie explained that the gun had gone off accidentally and that his finger may have been injured then. He actually wasn't sure. But he did say that he enjoyed watching how scared everyone was from his upstairs bedroom window and added, why, I wouldn't have shot any of you. It was later determined that Archie's bullet had been fired upward, confirming that the men downstairs had not been his target. The men repeatedly asked Archie why he shot Reverend Prickett, but he offered up no direct answer. He just kept repeating, I'm satisfied. I shot him all right, and I'm satisfied. A crowd of an estimated 200 people stood outside as Marshal Ferrat and Archie emerged from the house. The mob, they were angry, and murmurs of hanging him on the spot could be heard. So to get him out of there quickly, the decision was made to place 49-year-old Archie in a doctor's automobile, which was quite rare for 1908, and they took him to the county jail in New Brunswick, which was about 7 miles or 11 and a quarter kilometers away. There, Heron was questioned by a reporter and stated, quote, They hounded me. He's referring to Marshal Forret and, of course, Reverend Prickett. 
They came to my house two years ago, and when I was ill from the heat, they said I was drunk and sent me to jail. They were after me other times, too. He continued. I was working as a blacksmith in the Perth Amboy Iron Metal Company shops that summer, and the heat was awful. It made me ill, and I had to quit and go home. Next day, I went back, but I couldn't stand it, and I had to go home again. I was lying in my bed when they came and said I was drunk and sent me to jail. Now, Mrs. Heron refused to visit Archie at the jail. Quote, If Archie tells you to ask me to come see him, don't let me know of it. He committed an awful crime and must bear the consequences alone. On Monday, July 20th, a grand jury indicted Archie for murder. He was later brought before New Jersey Supreme Court Justice James J. Bergen, and the prosecutor asked, To this, what do you plead? Archie's reply was, Not guilty. Now, I have to make a side note here, and that's because prior to 1947, the court system in New Jersey had a very different structure from how it's set up today. The highest court in the state was the Court of Errors and Appeals. The New Jersey Supreme Court at the time was an intermediate appellate court, and each of the five Supreme Court justices, they were required to preside over the county-level courts. So the odd thing about the structure was that Judge Bergen, who I just mentioned was on the Supreme Court, he was presiding over Archie Heron's case in the county court. But if that case was appealed, it would go to the Supreme Court on which Bergen sat. And if it was even further appealed to the Court of Errors and Appeals, Bergen sat on that bench also. Now, as a side note to the side note, Bergen was also one of the three judges who decided to uphold the decision in the Minerva Miller case that I discussed in last month's podcast. And if you haven't heard that, I do suggest you go back and listen to it. It's a very good story. Okay, back to Archie's story. One week after Archie was indicted, a jury of 12 men was impaneled. And when the trial began the next day, two alienists, and that's not a term you hear much anymore, two alienists, that's what we call psychiatrists today, they told of how Archie had been drinking for years and they gave lengthy testimony as to Archie's sanity. Dr. W.E. Ramsey summed up the opinion of both doctors in just one single sentence, quote, my opinion is that the man is insane. Now, Archie refused to take the stand in his own defense, and there were repeated calls from Mrs. Heron to testify. But she didn't show up for court that day, so a court order was issued, and an officer was sent to bring her in. But unfortunately, due to the stress, she collapsed, and her doctor insisted that she wouldn't be able to testify that day. So Justice Bergen, he ordered that the trial just proceed without her, and surprisingly, Archie's lawyer, that's retired Judge Charles T. Cowenhoven, he didn't object. At 4.25 that afternoon, the jury delivered their verdict. Clerk Howard Westner began, Gentlemen of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict? We have, was the reply. They were then asked, Who shall speak for you? Our foreman. What say you, Mr. Foreman? Do you find the prisoner at the bar guilty or not guilty? The foreman's reply was, we find him guilty of murder in the first degree. Thirteen days and one hour after Reverend Prickett had been murdered, Justice Bergen requested that Archie stand up. Quote, Prisoner, the penalty for your crime is death. Bergen continued, the sheriff will be served with the necessary papers to take you to the state prison, and you are hereby sentenced to be executed according to the law during the week of September 7th. 
Archie's attorney, who I said was Judge Cowenhoven, he expressed disappointment in the decision to the press, quote, As a state-appointed counsel for Heron, I feel that I can conscientiously say that I did my best to save him from the chair. Apart from my views as a public official familiar with the facts in the case, I have no hesitancy in saying that it is my private, honest, and deep-rooted conviction that Heron is insane and was insane when he committed the cruel murder. Understand me, my sympathies are all with the bereaved family and the afflicted community. Yet, actuated solely by a righteous and fearless sense of duty, I may apply for a commission to examine Heron exhaustively and determine his mental status as exactly as it is within the power of man to do. He added, I will never see Archibald Heron sit in the electric chair. After being sentenced, Archie was led back to the jail where a reporter for the Daily Home News attempted to interview him. Through the bars of his cell, Archie stated, quote, No, I don't care to make any statement. What is there to say? As he puffed away on his pipe, Heron seemed to be unmoved by the verdict. You can't always judge by appearances. Maybe I take it more seriously than you think I do. But what's the use in worrying? It's all over and that's all there is to it. Regarding the trial itself, he commented, Oh yes, they were fair, all right. I think, though, if some things had been put up in another way, it might have made some difference. The reporter then asked, Do you think Mrs. Heron could have helped you if she had appeared in your behalf? Archer replied, Yes. The reporter then said, Why didn't she come then? His reply was, I don't know. There were others that could have done me good too, if they wanted to. We're going to take a quick break at this point to hear from our sponsors, but when we return, we'll find out what happened next and how Archie Heron, how he became a man forced to stay on death row to stay alive. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Just prior to the break, we learned that Archie Heron had been found guilty of murdering Reverend Prickett and had just been sentenced to die. We pick up the story a few days after that decision was made. 
At 8.45 on the morning of Friday, July 31st, a crowd gathered as Archie boarded a trolley to be taken to the death house in Trenton. And Trenton lies about 25 miles or 40 kilometers away. Upon arrival, Archie boasted to the prison clerk, that's a guy named Irving C. Bleem, quote, I'll beat it. The next day, Archie penned a letter to President Theodore Roosevelt, and of course, prison officials opted not to forward that one on. Trenton, New Jersey. Mr. Theodore Roosevelt, President. Dear Sir, I write again to you and demand that I get full justice as all are entitled to that. I was taken here in a great hurry before I could get my counsel that was appointed for me. I wanted to instruct him to find the guilty parties as I am not guilty of the crime charged. No truth could be told or was told at the trial. I wrote to you from Brunswick and I got no answer from my letter. I will give due time for an answer to this. If it is not forthcoming, I must appeal elsewhere as I demand full liberation of a full truthful trial. They told me in Brunswick they put any man on trial and in that county, it is the innocent that suffers. The guilty ones go free. Let me hear from you by return mail as don't wish to make a demand over you, but you must not compel me by silence. My suffering and persecution has been long and long suffering, and I demand it to be made a case by you and not compel me to appeal elsewhere. Archibald Heron, State Prison, New Jersey. Well, that letter did nothing for him, but preparation for Archie's execution did move forward. On August 19th, Warden Osborne summoned six men to witness his electrocution, and one of those men was the arresting officer, Marshal Enos Ferret. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Judge Cowenhoven worked tirelessly to keep Archie out of the electric chair. Just days before that was scheduled to happen, Cowenhoven was able to secure a writ of error. He argued that Archie should have been declared insane and that Justice Bergen had erred by allowing the trial to conclude without the testimony of Mrs. Heron. This forced the case to the Court of Errors and Appeals, you know, the highest court in the state, and they upheld Archie's conviction on November 27th. His execution was rescheduled for 9 p.m. on Wednesday, January 27th of 1909. Meanwhile, a number of prominent physicians began to come forward with their opinion that Archie was insane. The following blurb appeared in the Trenton Evening Times on January 11th. Quote, There is one prisoner, however, in Murderer's Row who has been giving the prison authorities a great deal of trouble. He is Archibald Heron of Middlesex County, who killed Samuel Beatty Prickett of Metuchen last July. Dr. Paul L. Court and Dr. Horace Q. Norton of the city visited Heron yesterday with the view of determining, if possible, whether he is simulating insanity or is really mentally unbalanced. The physicians were reticent regarding the result of their visit, but it is strongly intimated that they believe that Heron's actions are the result of a mere spirit of deviltry. On January 22nd, with just five days to spare, Cowenhoven formally requested that Governor John Franklin Fort stay Heron's execution, you know, allowing for either an investigation as to his sanity or for an action by the state's court of pardons. Governor Fort denied the reprieve. And Fort made clear his dissatisfaction with the claim of insanity to the press, quote, 
So far as I'm able to speak for the state, I want to say that New Jersey has no sympathy with unwritten law ideas and insanity dodges resorted to these days to free men who deliberately commit murder. There is altogether too much of this sort of thing practiced in the courts today, and I want the people of this state and other states to know that New Jersey does not approve of such defenses in murder cases. On the day before the scheduled execution, Cowanhoven made a last-ditch effort to judge John Relstab in Mercer County Court. That's the county where death row was located. And he wanted a formal inquiry into Archie's sanity. Relstab stated he did not doubt that an inquiry should be made, but he questioned whether he had any jurisdiction to do so. So Relstab ruled against Archie Heron, and that of course was immediately followed by an appeal to the Supreme Court and then on to the Court of Errors and Appeals. So awaiting the outcome of that decision, Governor Fork granted Archibald Heron a reprieve. On Monday, March 22nd of 1909, the Court of Errors and Appeals, in a unanimous vote of 12 to 0, they sustained Judge Relstab's decision not to order an inquiry into Archie's sanity. So, on March 27th, Governor Fort signed a warrant and it ordered Warden George Osborne to execute Archie within seven days, beginning Tuesday, March 30th. That was three days later. It would seem that Archie Heron had run out of legal options, but he had not. You see, at nearly the same moment that he received Governor Fort's order, Osborne also received a conflicting order from Supreme Court Justice Bergen, and it ordered an inquiry into Heron's sanity. While Bergen wasn't convinced of Archie's insanity, he was the sentencing judge, and he felt that enough medical professionals had come forward with their opinions that Archie was insane to justify the inquiry. So under Bergen's new order, Archie's execution was, quote, suspended until further orders from the court. Now those seven words were important. That last clause would hang over Archie Heron's head for the remainder of his life. Suspended until further orders from the court. Cowenhoven attempted to have Archie transferred to a state mental hospital, but it turns out there was no provision in New Jersey law allowing for that to happen. You see, technically Archie was on death row awaiting execution, and there was no provision in the law allowing his custody to be transferred to a psychiatric facility. Archie was on death row, and that is where the law required him to stay. And of course, days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and months turned into years as the experts debated as to Archie's sanity. And the two men who were responsible for keeping Archie out of the chair would both pass away in 1921. It has been said that up until his death on March 9th, Judge Cowenhoven tirelessly fought to get Archie off of death row and into a mental institution. Then, Justice Bergen passed away on October 20th of the same year without having issued those, quote, Further orders. Bergen's passing is what placed Archie Heron into a catch-22 situation. That's because New Jersey law at the time only allowed the presiding judge to set the date of execution. With Bergen dead, no one had the legal authority to execute Archie, nor did anyone have the legal authority to transfer him to a mental institution, nor did anyone have the legal authority to release him. As long as Archie remained on death row, he could stay alive. Should he or his lawyers attempt to win freedom, there was a good chance the court would rule that he was sane and therefore he should die for his crime. And it may seem contradictory, but the only sure way for Archie to stay alive was for him to spend the remainder of his natural life awaiting execution on death row.
While Archie was certainly on the mind of prosecutors when Bruno Hauptmann went on trial in 1935 for the abduction and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr., remember the trial of the century? You see, there was the fear that aged Judge Thomas Whitaker Trencher would die before all of Hauptmann's appeals had been exhausted, and of course that would place him right into the same Catch-22 situation as Heron. So the law was changed to allow the presiding judge to sign the death warrant, you know, should the original judge leave office, become ill, or die. Well, Trenchard fooled them all, and he lived another six years beyond Hauptmann's 1936 execution. But this change in the law did not retroactively apply to Archie. With no one left to fight for him, Archie Heron became New Jersey's forgotten man, and that name was coined by the press. He would spend each day in his cell content to just sit there and smoke his pipe. And since the death house could only hold six people, Archie was eventually moved to a regular cell block, even though he technically was a death row inmate. Archie never attempted to escape, even though they left the door to his cell unlocked most of the day. He interacted with a few people, he rarely ever left his cell, and his only visitors were the occasional reporter. As for his family, after his conviction, his wife Margaret just wrote Archie off and she never came to visit him. And the press would report on this for years and years and years. They weren't aware that she passed away on August 15th of 1912, just a few years after he went into prison. As for his son Archie Jr., he did visit once after Archie's arrest, but he never came again. When a letter arrived in 1942 informing him that his son had been killed in a railroad accident, Archie refused to sign the enclosed documents and declared that he didn't have a son. As he grew older, the newspapers would run stories about him, and every year they tell about how he aged one more year, and they repeat the same old story of how a man ended up living his life on death row. Occasionally, a reporter would add a small detail, like when Archie had gone to the hospital in 1934 and heard radio for the first time, or when he saw his first movie in 1936, but the story basically remained the same. He was technically still on death row when he passed away on August 30th of 1948 at 89 years of age. Archie was buried in the New Jersey State Prison Cemetery in Trenton, and his tombstone simply reads, 491. When Archie Heron first stepped into the death house in Trenton back in 1908, he told the prison clerk that he would beat it. He certainly did. Useless, useful, I'll that for you to decide. And with that, it's time to bring another long-forgotten story to a close. Now, some of you may recall from the Minerva Miller story that I did uh, about a month ago that I mentioned I was working on another New Jersey story when I came across her story. And this is that story. It's the story I was researching at the time. You see, the chronology of how Archie Heron ended up stuck on death row, it took a long time to research and unravel, and that's why I went with the Minerva Miller story first. Just a reminder that my latest book, The Flipside History, is currently available, as are my two previous books, Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. All three books are collections of long-forgotten true stories, just like the ones you typically hear in this podcast. Now, since I recorded the last retrocast, I have completed working on the Turkish version of The Flipside History, and if you can read Turkish, which I certainly cannot, in fact, I can't think of anybody I know who does, a lot of people who speak a lot of languages, but I can't think of anyone who speaks Turkish. Anyway, if you can read Turkish, there are four bonus stories in that book. After I rewrote the introduction, I asked the, the publisher if they could include some additional stories, and they said they'd love it. Anyway, um, they were some of my favorites from this podcast, so you're not really missing out on anything. That's because 
I have English versions of every single podcast. The stories are all on my website, uselessinformation.org. If you've never gone there, I really uh, would suggest you check it out. There's other stuff besides uh, what I talk about on the podcast. If you'd like to contact me about anything, you know, whether it be regarding this episode, the podcast itself, my books, the website, or maybe just want to say hello, my email address is steve at uselessinformation.org. You can also contact me through my website or you can use Messenger on Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast or your favorite podcast platform and you'll have immediate access to new episodes when they're released. Lastly, my Twitter feed is at UselessInfoCast and be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there and it should pop up. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next podcast and thanks as always for listening and take care everyone. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.